Good morning, New Life Midtown. Come on in, find a seat. Welcome to the house of the Lord today, guys. Thanks for worshiping so well. Thanks for connecting so well. I love, how many of you guys think that Lauren today just did an incredible job transitioning our service? So good. I could not be more proud, except for the fact that she said that the connection time was her favorite part of the service and not my preaching or Jonathan's worship. I'm just saying, or the table. Sorry, Lord, but she's the perfect person to have over our guest ministry and over our outreach and out there at the Welcome Center. And by the way, if you're here today for the very first time, I would like to meet you at our Welcome Center as well. My name is Jay Duncan. I've been the lead pastor here for 17 years, going on 18 this August, and it's a joy and a delight to have you with us in our service today. We've been in a series, actually, for just one week. We started a series last week on who God is as Father. And last week, we talked about what we're calling a cornerstone characteristic or a cornerstone attribute of who God is. Now, there are so many aspects of who God is that we can discover and learn about. But I think that there are some that are more important than others, that there are some that actually lay a foundation for us to build on understanding who he is. And last week we discovered that one of the most important characteristics about who God is that we understand is that he's good. And that every situation of life, no matter what is happening around us, no matter what cards we've been dealt, that we can look back and we can say with full conviction and with full belief, God is good. And we're gonna announce that he's good. And we're gonna believe that he's good. And we're going to praise him because he's good. And we're going to come together and gather with God's people because he's good. And we're going to recognize that as we look back and take inventory over our lives, that we can see the fingerprints of how good God has been in our lives. And when we condition our hearts to believe this truth and to live from this truth, friends, I believe that you actually begin to see the goodness of God more and more in your life when you begin looking for it. So today I have another characteristic of who our God is. And by the way, I want to remind all of us that our heart and our purpose for this series really is twofold. It's that every single one of us would come to understand and know who God is more deeply, more personally, more intimately. I personally believe that no matter how long we've been walking with God, and some of us in this room have been walking with God for decades faithfully pursuing God, reading his scriptures, praying, worshiping, interceding for the kingdom of God to come, watching and waiting for the manifestation of God's kingdom. Guys, there are people that have been in this room that have been walking with God literally for 50, 60, and 70 years of their lives. That's amazing. And the thing that I love is that they're not satisfied, that they're not just content that they're still seeking and searching to discover more of who God is. Friends, we'll spend the rest of eternity discovering the depths of who God is, plumbing the depths of his goodness. Like, we'll, we'll be together in eternity going, oh, that's how faithful he is. Oh, my goodness, that's, how, that's what grace means. That's what grace means. Like, we'll have aha moments in eternity. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. But one of my big prayers is also that there will be people that join us online. There will be friends and guests that we'll invite, maybe even friends that might just stumble in here because the Holy Spirit is drawing them, and they'll hear the message of the gospel so simply communicated that it will be irresistible, that they'll see a different kind of God than other pockets and parts of Christianity may have represented to them that they'll see a good God and they'll see a compassionate God and they'll see a God, again, that I just believe, how could we say no to him when we really see how good he is? So if you have your Bibles today, I wanna invite you to read with me from the book of Exodus. We're gonna look at Exodus chapter 34 and we're actually gonna begin with verse one. We're gonna read about seven verses into the 34th chapter of Exodus. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna talk about what is becoming one of my favorite characteristics of who God is. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. Everybody say, like the first ones. 
and I will write on them the words that were on the first ones. Everybody say on the first ones, which you broke. All right. It's getting real already in verse one. God says, be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. He's being called into the principal's office, y'all. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. He went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him and he proclaimed his name. Say proclaimed his name. In other words, he made himself known. He revealed to Moses, son, this, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. When life throws you a curveball, when you get a report that you weren't expecting, when you go into work and you find out that you don't have any more work to do anymore, you've been suddenly let go or laid off. Friend, I want you to remember this story because this is God revealing to Moses in a moment of correction and discipline and punishment. Son, this right here is the very core of my being. This is my name and this is my nature. And then he goes on to describe that in verse 6. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Who is this God that we serve? Who is this God that we sing songs about and that we turn to in our darkest hours? He is the compassionate and gracious God. He is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Verse 7 says, He is the God who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Friends, let's pray. God, I'm crying out to you today. I'm lifting up my voice, and God, with every fiber of conviction and hope and faith in my belly, Lord, I'm crying out that you, by your Spirit, would make yourself known. Lord, that you'd breathe afresh upon clay lips, and God, that you would breathe through these clay lips, and somehow, in the way that only you can do, you would make foolish things become wisdom to us, and Lord, that you would reveal your heart. Holy Spirit, that you would remove every veil, that you would remove all judgments and wrong beliefs about who God the Father is, and I'm praying today that you would give us eyes to see. I'm praying that you would draw the hearts of every person that's in this room and those that are watching online, that you would draw us, draw us, that you would woo us, you would compel us, Lord, that you would invite us to discover who you are. And I pray, Lord, today that we would taste and that we would see that you're the real deal, that you're beautiful, that you're faithful, that you're good. And today I pray that you would reveal that you are the compassionate God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. When when my mom was pregnant with me 44 years ago, which is a little odd for me to say that, I know. Who whistled? Did you just whistle, bro? 44 years ago. Man, I I make 44 look good, I'm just saying. I was out in the lobby, and Mr. Ted Carrillo, who's been here for years, he walked up to me, he grabbed my jacket, he says, now that's what a pastor's supposed to look like. I was like, like, thank you, Pastor Ted. After 17 years of being here, guys, I have finally, I have finally looked like what a pastor's supposed to look like. I pulled this jacket out of my closet, by the way. This is 27 years old. I got this when I graduated. My parents took me out there like, all right. You're going to a college. You're going to be a preacher someday. We got to get you some suits. I still fit this jacket, y'all. Come on now. Come on. I mean, I mean, I got I to gotta suck it in a little bit, but you know. 27-year-old jacket. You see, if you buy classic things, they'll never run out of style, y'all. I'm just saying. All right, all y'all young folks out there. Okay, anyways, my mom was pregnant with me 44 years ago. My mom is Korean, full-blooded, first-generation Korean. And... 
My dad was in the army. He was deployed to Korea, met her, met her up in a club, <laughs> saw her. He said, that woman's going to be mine. Fell in love with her right there on the spot, won her heart. He says, I'm going to marry her. Brought her stateside. They got married. They got married on December the 24th, and I was born in September the 20th. You guys do the math. I was a honeymoon baby. My mom, because she was Korean, English was not her native tongue, so my dad married her and took her to the sticks of Jonesboro, Arkansas. And so for nine and a half months when she was pregnant with me, she got a hold of a Korean English Bible that I have. I don't even know the part of the story. I don't even know how she got it, but somehow she got her hands on a Korean English Bible. And at that time, she was still a Buddhist persuasion, and she began reading this Bible for hours and hours and hours. Friends, I was being soaked and saturated in the Word when I was in my mother's womb. She came across a story by a gal named Hannah in 1 Samuel. And for those of you guys who aren't aware of this story, there's a gal by the name of Hannah who can't have babies. And in her desperation, she's fasting. She's cutting away all food, and she's crying out to God, and she's saying, God, if you will give me a son... I promise you, she starts making deals with the Lord. She says, I promise you, this son will be yours. And my mom reads this, and she says, well, if it worked for Hannah, it can work for me. And before I even had a say in the matter, she was making deals with the Lord. (laughs) And she said, I know that I've grown up a Buddhist my entire life, but I've come to know the God of Jesus, and I'm just going to do what the people in the Bible do, and this son is yours, Lord. So all my life, as a young kid, she'd, she'd run around the house, and she would, like, make me do things in the scriptures that I didn't even know. Like, I'm like, I, I, I'm not following your God. Like, why are you having me do all this? I didn't know any different. When I get in trouble, like she wasn't like most moms. She was like, okay, here's how we're gonna discipline you. You need to read more Bible, obviously. <laughs> so when I get in trouble, she'd pull out the scriptures and she'd take me to Proverbs and she'd like grab a notebook and she's like, you're gonna write the scriptures for an hour. And so every time I get in trouble, like I'd have to write the Proverbs. And then she thought, well, you're not getting trouble enough. Why don't we just start doing this on a regular basis? Because your, your penmanship needs to look a little bit better. And so, and so part of my penmanship disciplinary exercises came from spending an hour. Now, I don't know if you've ever written anything for an hour. My God, my, my arm as a third and fourth and fifth grade boy felt like it was going to fall off. So at an early age, she began putting the scriptures inside of me. And then she would say, okay, before you go to bed... She was like, you need to read the Bible. Like, where do I start? I don't care. Read it. Read it. I'm reading all these obscure passages, things I can't pronounce, but I just read the Bible. And then she was like, let's up the ante here. Now you need to start praying. So she was teaching me spiritual disciplines before I even knew what spiritual disciplines were. We moved from Germany to Holland, and then two years in Holland, we moved back to the States when I was in the seventh grade. And I didn't know that there was anything that existed but Catholic and Protestant because on a military basis, that's all you got. It was a Catholic, and then there was a Protestants, and we ended up being in these Protestant services. But when you came back to stateside, there's all these different churches, and I discovered things called Assembly God Youth Camps, and I'd go to Assembly God Youth Camps, y'all, and I would kill people on Bible trivia. (laughs) I was crushing it because I was writing the scriptures. All y'all spoiled Western American kids, y'all was doing something. I was writing the scriptures. But you know what? With all that Bible inside of me, with all that Bible knowledge and all the right answers, I didn't know God. All the prayers at night. I mean, I could tell you the stories at a young age, and people would be blown away. They're impressed. But I didn't know who God was. And it was the summer before my senior year of high school that I had an encounter with the Lord in the middle of a worship set that I tell you I came down to an altar, one of those old school wooden altars. I bent down, and I was at that altar for two hours, and I was having a literal encounter with the living God. And friends, I wept my way through that entire moment, and when I got up, I was different because all of those seeds of Scripture that were being soaked and saturated in me from the time I was in my mother's womb is like something. It was like oil and gas were just being like soaked unto the wood of my life. And in that moment, fire hit that. And I encountered God. And it began to affect everything. I changed my friendships. The way that I interacted with girls changed. I went home and I took my basketball. Guys, I used to sleep with my basketball. It was crazy. (laughs) I used to take my basketball into grocery stores. 
so annoying. Like, really, dude? Blockbuster. I'm like in Blockbuster, like doing drills. Blockbuster. My dad's like, bro, put your ball away. I'm like, no, this is my, this is my basketball, man. I came up out of that service. I took my basketball, put it on my bed. I was like, Lord, this basketball is yours. Took all our records. I was scratching and DJing at the time. I was like, these are yours. These are yours. It changed me. It changed me. I had an encounter with the living God. Ended up going to Oral Roberts University. The very next year, I found myself in Indonesia on a mission trip, and God visited me again, and he said, son, I don't just love America. I love the nations. I'm a God of the nations which I had no paradigm for at all. I had, I had zero paradigm for that. I was encountering God again. And friends, let me tell you that from that moment, I have been on a journey since 1994 of encountering who God is, understanding his heart. In 2008, the Lord sent me through an entire year where he had me cut away certain things that I was reading and he had me soaking in the subject of sonship of the father heart of God. And so I'm particularly excited about this series because as much as I've been discovering God and on this journey in my life of encountering who God is that met my mom when I was in her womb, I'm telling you today that when I discovered the Father heart of God, it changed everything. It changed everything. Shame and guilt and insecurity and fear and rejection, like literally God began working those things off of me. Like, I'm not moved and I'm not motivated out of a need to impress you. Like, the fear of man no longer has its claws and its clutches in my heart and in my mind and my imagination. Like, the, 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 the security of knowing that I'm a beloved son because of who God is as Father. And here's the thing that we need to realize is that when God invites us to discover his heart, he's inviting us to discover who we are as sons and daughters. Because we relate to him to the degree that we understand him rightly. There's so many people in the world right now, people that you know. Maybe it's some of us in this room or online. Maybe it's friends of ours or family members that they're running from God or they're holding God at an arm's distance because of a picture and version of God that is not consistent with who he really is. So we read this story here in Exodus chapter 34, and we're going to go back to that. This is like one of those shows or those movies that have like a flash forward, and then they have a flashback. So they show you the end, and then they go back. Because if you notice, in Exodus chapter 34, numerous times, God is referencing the first ones, the first tablets. So here God is encountering Moses, and he's like, I got I to gotta pick up the pieces of the mistake that you made, and I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you another chance, but where is this story coming from? For those of you who are new to the scriptures or you're unfamiliar with some of these stories, in the first book of the Bible, the book called Genesis, God is establishing a family. God is calling a group of people to himself. It begins with the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And when they choose to willfully rebel and to disobey God, they kind of mess the story up, but God is in the business of constantly working with our mistakes to bring us back to his perfect vision of his original story. So we find in 13 chapters later that God shows up, 12 chapters later, God shows up to a man by the name of Abram. And God says, listen, son, if you will leave your family and leave your country, I'm going to take you to a place that you can't even imagine. I've got a, I've got a country that I'm promising you, and it's not just for you. Because, Abram, if you'll follow me, even though you don't have kids right now and you're well into your 80s, I promise you this, that out of you, son, that I'm actually going to make an entire nation of people. And in fact, I'll tell you what, not only am I going to make an entire nation of people, but through that nation, I am literally going to touch and bless every people group on the planet. I mean, that's a huge promise. I mean, imagine like you're just going about your day and you're doing normal stuff that you do. You're cleaning up the house. You're running to the grocery store. You're putting things away. You're preparing. You're doing meal prep. You're, you're, you're laying out your clothes for the next day. You walk out the door and God shows up and he says, hey, listen, just by the way, if you'll just do this one little thing for me, I want you to know that I'm literally going to change the course of history for all of humanity. You're out on a hike and he causes you to look up to the stars and go, see all the stars? Yeah, that's what I'm going to go that's what I'm going to do through you. And sure enough, God is faithful to his promise. Through a miraculous source of provision, God causes Abram and Sarah to have a child. His name is Isaac. And then Isaac has 
two children. One of them is named Jacob. God encounters Jacob and changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel has a boatload of sons. And one of his sons is a guy by the name of Joseph who's actually sold into prison by his own brothers. And he's carted off to a land that's not his own and he ends up in a place called Egypt. Joseph ends up ruling that land. He's second in command through a series of incredible events. I encourage you guys to read the story. And then Joseph marries an Egyptian woman and has two sons. And then he's reunited with his father, Jacob. It's such a beautiful story. Jacob thinks Joseph's dead. Joseph thinks Jacob's dead. And out of this bizarre twist of fate, his brothers, the very ones who sold him into Egypt, end up coming to him and he encounters them and they realize, my God, the brother that we sold into slavery is alive. And they say, Joseph, your father is alive. And Jacob comes and he meets Joseph, who he thought was dead, who he was told was dead, and then finds out that he actually has grandsons from Joseph. There's this beautiful moment when he takes Joseph's sons in his arms and he says, these sons are now my own. And this is how Israel now has 12 tribes. God is faithful. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And just three generations, the family line is exploding. They settle down in Egypt. They have favor there. The king is good to them. And they continue to reproduce, but over the course of time, generation after generation after generation after generation, there's another king that comes to power, and he doesn't know all these stories. He doesn't know the promises of God. He wasn't there when all the beautiful, miraculous things that Joseph did. He hasn't heard all these things. All he can see is, there's another group of people that are living in my land, and they're starting to become too numerous for us. I mean, think about this. You're a godless king. People are living in your country who are of a different ethnic minority, and you're saying, these guys are exploding. And if this continues, if they ever get disgruntled, all they have to do is rise up and overpower us. So he does what most people who are, have wicked wickedness in their heart, they abuse their authority, and he just enslaves all of them. And they're in slavery for 400 years. Now remember, these are, these are God's children. These people that are living in slavery in another person's land, these are the people that are the fruit of God's covenant promise to a man who chose to be faithful and obey God. There's, there's history here. There's a story. There's a legacy. There's inheritance here. And now they're trapped, and they're living under the burden of another person. And God is watching all of this, friends. You see, we serve the God who sees we serve the God who's intimately involved. And then we find over here in Exodus chapter 3, you can turn there with me if you would like in Exodus chapter 3, God picks a man by the name of Moses. And again, on an obscure, ordinary day, listen, don't ever invalidate, don't ever discount, don't ever despise ordinary days. Because you never know when God may pull you aside and show up to you and literally change the course of history. Never despise ordinary moments when you're out just walking the dog. That's what Moses was walking the sheep. And you might be out there in the park walking the dog, and God show up and speak to you, and it change your life. I was talking with my brother-in-law, Todd. He's not here today. He's helping out with the Stars Theater Company production. And he was praying on whether or not he was supposed to go to Guatemala with me. I, I threw out an invitation to a couple of guys, and my brother-in-law was one of them. Because it was a construction trip, trip, and there was no construction bone in my body. I was like, Todd, I need you. And there were some pretty significant family events that were going on in his life. And, and he needed to make a decision very quickly. He and I live actually very close to each other. And there's this park that separates the two of us. And he was out walking the dog. One lap. He told the Lord, he said, God, I got one lap. I got to get an answer. Before, I, before the time I bring this dog back in the house. And friends, let me tell you, he rounded the corner and came on that home stretch and the Lord spoke to him and he called me and he says, I'm going to Guatemala with you. Friends, you just, you just never know what God can do in ordinary time. What God can do in ordinary common spaces of just being faithful in the life 
that you're planted in right now. Moses is out there. He's tending the sheep. God pulls him aside. God meets with him. And look with me right here, if you would, at verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3. The Lord's speaking, and he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Friends, I need you to understand this today, that God sees the misery that you are going through. Whatever level it may be, God knows it. God sees it. God cares about it. God's moving on your behalf. He says, I've heard my people crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. To make a really long story short, God comes through on his promises. He sends Moses. Moses confronts that wicked ruler. And then God begins to perform miracles in the land of Egypt to reveal his great arm and his strong power. And, and then Moses is used by God to deliver millions of people out of bondage. And it's powerful. Watch the Prince of Egypt and read the book of Exodus. God calls him out into the wilderness, and here's essentially what he was saying. Guys, I made a promise to your great, 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 great grandfather, and I told him that you're going to be my people, that I'm responsible for you, that I'm going to be a father to you, and you're going to be like my children, and you've been living in slavery for all these years, and I'm going to teach you how to be a self-governing, self-sustaining people. I'm going to teach you how to be a people who prosper. I'm going to teach you how to flourish. I'm going to teach you how to make it. I'm going to teach you how to live the good life. This is what God is essentially saying to the children of Israel. And he brings them out into the wilderness, and he begins to feed them out of the sky. He begins to cause heavenly manna to drop down into the ground. He begins to cause water to come out of the rock. And then he says, okay, now, now it's time to teach you how to live. It's time to give you laws. Like every good parent, listen, every good parent, every good grandparent, every good teacher, every good coach establishes boundaries and rules. And God begins to lay out rules to the children of Israel. Calls them the Ten Commandments. Puts them on stone. He writes them into stone with his very finger so that Moses can take these tablets down and communicate how to live life God's way to his people. Imagine you're up on the top of Pike's Peak. Maybe you take the cog or maybe you're a real, you're a real powerhouse and you actually hiked that bad boy. I, let, let's, let's just say you hiked it because it just makes the story that much more you know, epic. Moses gets to the top of Pike's Peak and God shows up to him and he says, I mean, and out of, the, out of Pike's Peak, he takes stone and writes down, listen, if you want to live life well, if you want to live life my way, if you want to prosper, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to flourish, here's how you do it. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Moses, because he's having this incredible encounter with God, face to face, God has given him this download all of the people, now listen, millions. This is the biggest block party that humanity has ever known. It is nuts. They are, they are flat out worshiping another God that they created. They take all of their earrings, their rings, their gold chains, all of their ice. They throw it into a fire. And they, they just melt all of their jewelry and they mold this thing into the image of a cow. Now remember, they're coming out of Egypt. This was everywhere. Right? The Egyptians worshipped Ra. They worshipped cows. They worshipped... So, so the, the children of Israel, they're just doing what they've always known. We, this, this is how they do it in Egypt. This is what we're going to do. Moses left us. We, we, we've we've got to thank God. We've got to worship God. We've got to do something. And so they take this golden calf out and it's like, it's craziness. y'all. It's madness. And they start worshiping this cow that they fashioned with their hands and their stuff. And they say, you're the one who delivered us from Israel or from Egypt. You're the one. It's just like, it's mind-blowing. Moses starts coming down the hill. He probably gets like to the bar trail at the top of the incline. He looks out and he sees, guys, like millions of people. Like so much so that while he and Joshua are making it down, they can hear, they can hear. And Moses is furious. He's furious. This is crazy. Put my life on the line for this. Like I confronted Pharaoh over and over and over again for this. Like, do, do you have no idea what God has done for us? And out of his own humanity and out of his own impatience, what does Moses do with those two tablets? 
I mean, he just slams those on the ground. Just slams those things on the ground. And then he comes down and he wrecks shop with those Israelites. I'm not going to tell you what it does, but it's gruesome. Like, you should, you should, you should read the story. He takes that golden calf, grounds it up into powder, and makes some. I mean, he's in, he's just infuriated. But he's also complicit now because out of his own temper and out of his own frustration and anger, he throws the handiwork of God down. Like, imagine that, friends. Imagine that God carves something into stone and gives it to you. And he gives it to you so that he can help you rule an entire group of people to be his sons and daughters. And you turn around and go, and you destroy it. You ever been in a situation where you got called in the principal's office? You ever got called? You, got, <laughs> you ever been in a situation where uh, maybe you did something and mom or dad wasn't home, but you heard this when your father gets home? Or have you been in a situation where uh, you're sitting there and then you get called, hey, I need you to go to my room right now. And the thing that I think is so, like, just so perfect about this story is God tells Moses, don't bring Joshua with you. See, I was an only child. I didn't have anybody to bring with me. But like my kids, whenever one of them gets it, they're all like, what, what, what about Keeson? Can he come too? Can he come with us? What about Milan? Can she come? You really like, she's the only girl. Like, you're really, really gracious when she's here. Like, they're always trying to bring, like, an advocate. You mean I got to come alone? And then God says this to Moses, like, listen, I need you to come to the mountain and come by yourself. And Moses is like, why did I break those things? What's going through Moses' heart and mind? Who is this God? Now, remember, they're still getting to know each other. I mean, Moses knows the God of power, right? Hands down. He knows that God is powerful. But we said last week that if God is powerful and he's not good, what makes God any different than Pharaoh? What makes him any different if he did? Like, will he do that? He's just more powerful than Pharaoh. Like, the only thing that we should fear more than a wicked ruler is if a more powerful, wicked ruler comes into place. And so Moses, in an act of boldness and courage in Exodus 33, has this conversation with God, and he says, listen, I'm not going a step further unless you promise to go with us. I'm not doing it. And God says, I'll up the ante. Not only will I choose to go with you, I'm going to show you who I am. Moses prays that. He says, listen, you got to go with us and you got to show me your glory. You got to show me who you are. You got to show me, you got to show me who I'm, I'm doing all this for. And God says, I'll do that. In fact, son, I'm going to show you my glory. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 34, just so we can read this again with a little bit more of the backstory here. And look again right here. At verse 4, so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one, and he went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord commanded. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, and the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with him. Oh, guys, you gotta, you got to taste the tenderness of this moment. And God says to him, son, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord. I am the compassionate and gracious God. I am the God who's slow to anger. Like it takes a lot to get me there. I'm the God who's abounding in love. I'm full of it. I'm full of faithfulness. And then he says to him, I maintain love to thousands and I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You know what's really curious or what's very fascinating about these little two verses right here? They're the most quoted verses in all of the Old Testament when it comes to the character and the nature of God. You see it in Jonah. You see it all throughout the Psalms. You see it in Nehemiah. You see it in Joel. It's like the people of Israel, they were catechized. They were taught. They were trained. Who is our God? He is I am that I am. I am what? I am this. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love. I am. And this is why over the course of the next five weeks that we're in this series about who is God as father, we're touching every single one of these concepts, beginning today with the fact that God is compassionate. 
What does this mean? The word compassion, the word compassionate is a really interesting Hebrew word. Compassionate is the Hebrew word rahum, which is spelled R-A-K-H-U-M. It's a derivative of compassion, which is raham, R-A-K-H-A-M. But both of these words find their origin in a word called rechem, R-E-K-H-E-M. And the word rechem is the word womb. So imagine in the brilliance of God that a word that he chooses to be the first description of his character, that in the etymology of the Hebrew language, he took this word, which is the first word describing himself, that he chooses to self-reveal, and he pulls that word out of a word called womb, which gives us a little bit of insight into what the word compassion is. Compassion is linked with the most intense emotion that a woman feels and carries over the most vulnerable thing in her life, that which she carries in her womb. When you see the word compassion, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see a couple of different iterations of that. You'll see being deeply moved. You'll see a variation called crying out. In fact, when we read in Exodus chapter 3, when God comes down, this is what he says, I heard my people crying out, and I was moved by their suffering. What is this? This is the God who is moved. We serve a God. We live for a God. We know a God. We worship a God. We gather around the table with a God who is moved by the state of our lives. He's moved at what is happening with the impressed. He's moved when we get word that our parents uh, are no longer remembering things the way that they He's moved by that. He's moved at the things that hurt us, the things that we're frustrated with, the things that we struggle with. God's moved at all of those things. He cares deeply about that. In fact, there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 3. I want you to take a look here at 1 Kings chapter 3. And beginning in verse 16, I'm going to explain the story, and then we're going to hone in on a particular verse in the story in verse 26. But the story goes like this. There's, there's a new king that's come into power. His name is Solomon. And the point of the story actually is, is that the author of 1 Kings is demonstrating to us how wise Solomon is. Because Solomon has asked God for wisdom, and God promised to give Solomon wisdom. He's young. And he has the responsibility to lead this nation of Israel. And he's like, God, I can't do this without you. I need your wisdom. And so this is his first judgment case as a king. And there are two prostitutes that come before him. They're in the king's chambers. And they stand before him, and one of them says, King, I need you to pardon me, my lord. This, this woman and I, we live in the same house. And I had a baby, and three days later she had a baby, and we're both sleeping in the middle of the night, and this lady, she rolls over on her baby, King, and the baby dies. But in the middle of the night, she comes and she takes my baby, and she brings my baby close to her bosom, and then she takes her dead child and she puts it in my bosom. And Lord, when I woke up, I, I, I looked down, and I know that this is not my child. Like a mom knows who her child is. And when you hold a baby that close to you and you're mesmerized and you're tenderly, affectionately tending to that child morning and night, you know who your baby is. And she's making this appeal to the king. King, you've got to do something here. This is wrong. This is unjust. Meanwhile, the other gal is just sitting back and she's just saying, nope, it's not true. You're a liar. And this woman is like, no, this, this is true. And so the king is sitting here, and he's just, you know, he's scratching his whiskers, and he's probably internally crying out to God, God, you've got to, you, you said you're going to give me wisdom. I need wisdom right now. We've got people's lives that are on the line here. And he leans forward in his throne, and he's, he's looking. He's listening. He's watching the eyes. He's watching every movement that these women make, and he's saying, I've, 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 got, to, I've got to make the right choice here. And so by a stroke of what I believe heavenly genius, he says, guys, bring me a sword. Now, if you're a mom here and the king's calling for a sword, you're thinking, what's going on here? 
And he says, guys, I got a really great, I got a really great way to handle this. In fact, let's just hold the baby out right there and stretch the baby out. We're just going to cut this baby in half. We're going to cut this baby in half, and you're going to get one half, and you're going to get the other half, and both of you have a half of the baby. It's very morbid, King Solomon. But something is evoked. And I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26. Because this is, the word, our, this is our word, compassion. This is our word, Racham. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love. Do you know what that phrase, deeply moved out of love, is? It's Racham. It's compassion. And then it says this. It says, she was deeply moved out of love for her son, and she said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Go ahead and cut him in two. And in this stroke of genius, what's revealed is not only whose child this belongs to, it's revealed by the compassion of the mother. Listen to some of these other translations. The New Living Translation says, the woman who was the real mother of the living child and who loved him very much, she cried out. The ESV says, then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Yearned. Listen to this. Like the language of the scriptures is all intentional. The New King James Version says that she yearned with compassion. But the King James Version says this. I'm not really a King James Version guy, but in this particular incident, the King James says this in a way that just made me stop and go, what is that about? Because the King James says that her bowels yearned upon her son. Remember, Racham comes from Rechem, which is the word womb, the deepest part of her. A lot of times when you see the word compassion, you will see the translation as bowels, right? And what this is communicating is, is that whatever the situation is, whether it's God or whether it's Jesus who's moved with compassion, which we see all throughout the Gospels, what you ought to, what you ought to put into that is they are moved in the deepest core of their guts. A lot of times I say, you got to get this in your bones, right? Compassion is not just an idea. Compassion is not just a fleeting thought or a fleeting emotion. Compassion's not sympathy. Compassion's not, oh, that's too bad. Compassion is something that gets into our bowels. It's an intense emotion that is fueled by care and concern that moves us to action. See, it's not really compassion until you're moved to action. It's not really compassion until you face your fears and you stand up and you speak out. It's not compassion. It's not compassion until you drive by and you see that guy and you pull over and you stop and you walk down there and you say, hey, man, like, tell me your story. What's going on? I see that you're hungry. I see you're asking for money. Like, that's compassion because it, it causes you to stop the rhythm of your daily routine. Compassion will interrupt you. Compassion will seize you. Compassion will cause you to do something that you would not ordinarily otherwise do. That's compassion. Compassion gets you to listen. Compassion invites you into the story of the person that you're feeling compassion towards. Are you hearing me today? Probably one of the best stories of the compassion of God that we find in the scriptures, I think, is in Luke chapter 15. You turn there with me in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus is telling a story, and he's telling a story to a certain group of people on purpose. He's telling this story because there's a group of religious leaders. They've got a lot of religious clout, and they're a little bothered by the fact that Jesus is spending so much time with people that he should not be spending time with. Like, Jesus, you know those guys are swindlers. Those guys... Those guys are crooked. Those guys are immoral. And you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. You should be in more dignified places. And so Jesus begins to tell this story that I want us to read because I want to make sure that every single one of us, particularly if some of you are hearing this story for the first time, I want you to see who our God is. Story begins in verse 11. Scripture says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, he was saying, I've got an inheritance coming, and I'm not ready to wait for you to die. I don't know how long you could be kicking this can down the road really long, and I may, not, I may miss some opportunities to have a really good time with all that cash you're sitting on, Pops. And essentially what he was telling his dad was that what you have is more important than who you are. And if we take it a step further, we could even say that the son was essentially saying to his dad, you're as good to me as dead. Just give me my inheritance now. You know, I've got little kids, and my two oldest are kind of coming of age. And, you know, little kids, when they're young, it's just programmed inside of us. Like, they know how to get what they want. I mean, down to like three and four years old. They change their tone. They bat their eyes at you. Uh, they want ice cream or they want candy or they want chips or they want to stay up late or they want to spend the night at a friend's house. Man, they know how to pull the strings. Everything changes. Dad, hey, Dad. Dad. I, I like calling my kids out when they do that. I'm like, what do you want? Don't be buttering me up because you want something. And that's cute when you're young, but when you get older, like when you're in your 20s or your 30s, and you essentially come and you say, Hey, listen, everything that you have for me, I'd rather have that than have a relationship with you. That stings. That hurts because you know what you're doing. And we're not talking about cotton candy and you know, dip cones anymore, right? We're, we're, we're talking about heart stuff. We're talking about the fact, son, that I've, I've actually foregone those opportunities in my life so that I could save these things up for you. I, I said no to pleasure so that I could give you a fresh start, right? And so the son takes all this cash and he runs out and the scripture tells us, verse 13, not long after, the younger son got together all that he had and he took a little trip. And he wasn't investing in business properties. He wasn't going out trying to buy, you know, more land and make a name for himself. Scripture tells us that he takes everything that his dad worked for not even what he worked for. Maybe one thing, if you work for that, you, you do what you want with stuff that you've worked for. But he goes to his dad and he says, I want what's yours what, that, that belongs to me. Listen to this entitlement. Right? This belongs to me. He takes it and then he just goes and he just spends it. I mean, we're just talking like craziness, revelry, blows it. We don't know exactly what he was doing, but scripture just tells us that he squanders it. He has nothing to show for it. And then as the story goes, look with me, if you would, at verse 14. After he had spent everything, then there was a severe famine, economic meltdown, recession. Didn't think about that, did you, son, when you are spending all my money? After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, you'll know that, fit, that pigs are considered to be unclean animals. That religiously, ceremoniously, morally, you weren't allowed to interact with, touch, or eat pigs. And here, in the greatest moment of shame and desperation and despair, not only has he turned his back on his dad, but now he's out there and he's feeding pigs. And it gets so bad that the scripture tells us that the slop that the pigs are eating is actually better than the food that he's eating. Like I want you to imagine the state of desperation that you must be in to be looking at what pigs are eating and saying, I think I'll take some of that. In the middle of all of this, like he's just like he's hit the low of the low. And if you're anything like me, you're praying that, that like our kids would never, ever have to experience that. The kid has a revelation and he realizes, man, there's, there's, there's guys that are working at my dad's house. Like there are servants that my dad has paid that are doing better than I am. And so here's what he does. He tells himself this story. He says, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to work this through and I'm I'm going to tell my dad, listen, I understand. I, 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 I blew it. I get it. 
you don't even have to treat me like a son anymore, man. Just, uh, just hire me out, all right? We, don't, we, we ain't got to go through all this. I don't even I don't have to have my room back. I don't have to go. I don't have to have my seat at the family table. I just am hungry, man. And uh, I just want to be in a safe place. So can I come back home? And I mean, I'll do whatever you tell me. And he's worked this up. It's a great plan. It makes total sense. The scripture tells us In verse 20, it says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And here's our word, friends. When he saw him, his father wasn't vindictive. When he saw him, he didn't fold his arms and go, yep, I knew it. I knew you'd come back. He didn't say, now, are you ready to listen to some common sense now? Life's hard out there, isn't it? What'd you do with all my money? It's not what the scripture says. The first thing the scripture tells us is that the father saw him when he was a long way off, guys. Which tells me. And we don't know how long this little, this little road trip of revelry took this boy. But it tells me that that our God's the God who sits on the porch and looks down the horizon and recognizes us when we return. Friends, he's the God who waits. He's the God who watches. And he's the God who deals compassionately with us. Like what I need you to hear about who God is is in the same way that that mom whose baby was about to die spoke up because she was so moved deep inside of her bones. This is that God. This is the God that we serve. And this is what that God did. He gets up out of his rocking chair and he undignifies himself. You know how he does that? We know he undignifies himself because the scripture says he's, he ran. And in that culture, is undignified. In order to run, he had to lift up his robe, exposing the skin of his legs, but he didn't care. You know, it was undignified too for Jesus to hang naked on a cross. That was undignified. What I'm here to tell you today is that we serve a God who's willing to embarrass himself and he's willing to be undignified and he's willing to go to whatever lengths he has to go to that the moment he sees us turn, friends, you know, in Hitch when he was like, no, no, I told you you go 90, I go 10. <laughs> Friends, listen, we have, we have the God who goes 100. That the moment he sniffs out the fact that we're turning in his direction, I'm telling you, he's a God who gets off the porch and he runs. And look at what he does. Out of his compassion, out of this intense emotion of care and concern that moves him to action, the father throws his arms around the son. And the son, I love it. He's, he's ready, man. He's ready. Dad, 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 dad. Dad, listen, I know I, I don't deserve this. You don't have to take me back. I blew it. I don't have any money left. I mean, like, the, the scriptures tell us that he came, like, straight from the pig pen. Now, you got to get this picture. He's soiled. He's dirty. He's despicable. He's disgusting. He's got pig junk all over him. So when the father hugs him and pulls him in close, he's getting everything that was on the son on him, and he doesn't care. Because this is what he's telling the son. We're face to face again, son. We're together. We have a chance. We can be reconciled. You can hear my heart. We can make this right. I can smell the scent of your being coming off of you. I could run my fingers through your hair, son. It doesn't matter. I don't want to hear your speech. I'm just glad that you're not dead and you're home. We'll work it out, but right now you need to know we're going to throw a party. 
because this is what I think about you. We serve the God who is moved with compassion, friends. You don't have to beat yourself up to win your way back into his favor. That's not our God. That might be somebody else's God, but we're talking about the God who raises Jesus from the dead. We're talking about the God of Exodus 3 who calls Moses aside and says, Son, I hear of the cries of my children. We're talking about the God who calls Moses up and he says, I know that you broke the first round of tablets, but son, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and maintaining loyal love and faithfulness to thousands. Guys, that's our God. That's our God. The God who watches on the porch the God who lifts up his robe, the God who runs to us, the God who throws his arm around us, the God who gets pig slop on himself, the God who weeps over us, the God who runs his finger through our hair and looks us dead in the eyes and says, I love you and my heart is compassionate towards you. That's your God. That's your God. That's your God. That's your God, friends. So any moment that you're wasting in the pig pen is a moment that you're stealing from him and it's a moment that you could be feasting at his table friends will you stand to your feet with me this morning I feel this in my bones today that there were some of us who have a hard time being compassionate with ourselves And you know why that is? There's so many reasons. But the world wants to convince you that the only way for you to make it in this world is to be harder on yourself. Life doesn't hand out any free treats. Money doesn't grow on trees. Pull up your bootstraps. Stop your whining. Suck it up. This is not the language of the God who runs. So when the Bible tells us, don't be conformed to the image of the world, like you have to, whatever that running narrative is in your head, and maybe it was from your own father, or maybe it was from your own mom, or maybe it was from the military, or maybe it was from a, a pastor or a deacon board or an elder board, or maybe it's from a youth pastor, or maybe it's from a previous spouse. I don't, know, I don't know who this is coming from, but I'm here to tell you today, if it's not the language of the father who runs and weeps over you with loving compassion, friends, you've got you to you push that language far away from you because it's keeping you from touching the compassionate heart of God. And here's what I know, that you and I will never be compassionate to the people of the world around us. We'll never be compassionate to our daughters. We'll never show compassion to our wife when she runs in, when she has a car accident. We'll never be compassionate to our husband when he loses his job. We'll never be compassionate to, the, to someone who's living a different life. So we will never be vessels of compassion until we let the compassion of God wrap us like a royal robe. Friends, will you hold out your hands today? I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to meet with you. And I'm going to pray today that the healing, restorative compassion of God kiss you like that father kissed that son. I'm going to pray today that God would run down that path because he sees you. I'm going to pray that you would experience the joy and the delight of a God loves everything about you and he's not waiting for you to get it all together and he's not interested in your speech or your promises he's interested in your heart he he wants your heart and he's kind towards you and he's tender towards you and he's not waiting to bring the hammer and the axe down on you friend so in the name of Jesus experience compassion of God today. The intense emotion of a God who cares enough to do something on your behalf. I want to invite you today to come up and to receive a picture of the compassion of God, the body and the blood of Jesus, because Jesus is the embodiment of 
God's compassion in the flesh. We're going to take this together. I invite you to come out on the left, receive these elements. We'll break the bread and we'll drink the cup together, friends. this in my spirit as you guys are walking up here. I don't deserve this because I'm broken goods. You need to know today that there are no broken goods in the Father's family. There are no damaged goods. There are only sons and daughters. You need to know that. You are not damaged goods. You've not sinned beyond repair. You've not thrown your life away because we serve the God who raised Jesus from the dead, friends. And I've never seen this before, but in first service, this hit me. I want you to imagine now that prodigal son, that son who ran away from home, stuck his finger up to God, rebelled, and said, I, I've got a better way of doing this. I want you to imagine that that's all of humanity. This is the gospel story. All of humanity is that son. The difference in this story is that as God is watching, here's our story. That God comes to the older brother. You got to see this. And he pulls the older brother, Jesus, on his side and he says, Son, I need you to go down and I need you to find him. We're going to do a rescue mission, son. Because I can't have another day without him at my table. I can't have another day without her in my arms. I've got to know. I've got to know. Is she safe? So, son, I need you to go find him. And I don't care if you got to go into a pig pen. I don't care what you have to do. You go and you let them know that I'm not mad at him. And guys, the gospel is the announcement that God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. He's not folding his arms. He's not shaking his heads. He's not ready to give you an I told you so. He's, he sent Jesus to find us in the pig pen. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And here's the difference. Jesus found humanity and he says, Father sent me. He wants you to know he's not mad at you. And humanity says, listen, this is too good of a deal. We're going to stay right here. He says, nope, I'll tell you what. I'll stay here. I'll work off your debt. I'll tell you what. You tell, you tell dad, when you get back home and I'm not there, you tell him I went to the pig pen for you. You just get home. You just get home. Friends, the gospel story is that God gave us everything. We threw it all away, and he sent big brother to die on a cross so that we could come back to the family table. That's the gospel. And all you have to say is yes. So Jesus, today we come to you with open arms, with pig slob of sin and shame and guilt all over us. And we just say to you today, man, I heard that you had an invitation for me. Big brother came and he told me that he took my place. Man, if you got a robe, I'll wear it. I want to be a son and a daughter at your table again. God, today we say yes. God, we say we're sorry. We're sorry for leaving the house in the first place and thinking we had this whole thing figured out. And, Lord, we want to stay in this house, and God, would you just have mercy and compassion on us? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Just break that bread in your hand as a picture of the body of Christ crushed on your behalf. And he says, my friends, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Take and eat. Let us receive the body of Christ. And then he took the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's a new agreement. It's a new arrangement. I've changed the rules of the game. 
lay my life down for you and all you have to do is say yes to receive grace and mercy. That way, at the end of the day, the only one who gets a shred of glory in this is God because of his goodness and his grace. And the only glory you get is the glory of saying yes. That's the agreement. And so today, Lord, we say yes. And we believe that your blood has washed us and forgiven us and freed us of all of our sin. And we receive it. Let us receive the cup. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Let's sing a song of thanksgiving today, friends. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all your hands out today so that in the name of Jesus as a representative of God I can bless you in the name of God you know why we do this because God blesses his favorites and you're his favorite so may the Lord bless you may the Lord pour his favor and his goodness and his grace out on you may the Lord silence the voice of the accuser in your ears may the Lord shower you with loving kindness May the Lord lift up his beautiful face and may he look at you with his eyes. And when you look at his face, may you know that we serve a God who will go to the ends of the earth to win you back. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you guys.